You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Uh, about three months ago, I read a fantastic book on the topic of religious freedom. It was Religious Freedom in a Secular Age uh, by Mike Bird. And I was just so encouraged by his deep work on this topic. Uh, he's an academic dean at Ridley College, a lecturer. Uh, a lot of uh, students, uh, part of City on Hill, go to Ridley. Uh, and I was just so encouraged by his thoughtfulness, uh, his passion for Jesus, and his thoughtfulness on this particular topic that I thought it was just too good of an opportunity to have Mike share with us today. So we're in for a real treat, City on a Hill. I've got an opportunity. We've got an opportunity to meet him right now. Would you put your hands together and welcome up Mike Bird? Good to see you, Mike. Yeah. Wonderful to have you with us. Uh, Mike, I discovered that you joined the army when you were 18 years of age. 17. 17. Just turned 17. Just turned 17. Served as a paratrooper, yep. army intelligence, ended up doing some chaplaincy. What yep. was it like joining the army at 17? Best and worst thing about it. Okay, well, you have to remember, when I joined the army, I, uh, I weighed 48 kilograms. So I had the body of a scrawny chicken. Uh, in fact, one of the big, like, you know, physical training instructors said to me, recruit bird, and once you go down to the quartermaster store and ask them to issue you with a chest. Um, so it was, it was, it was, it was difficult because I was, I was I, I, you can tell I'm not, I'm not built kind of like one of those sort of, you know, big guys. Um, so I had, to, I had to physically, mentally, and emotionally develop very quickly. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a difficult time, but I got through it. I actually started to become good at soldiering. And uh, yeah, so it, kind of, it had a big impact on, on my life. What does it take to be a good soldier? Uh, it, it takes, above all, uh, discipline. You need what's called a sanguine uh, mindset, is that no matter how bad things are going, you keep going. Because mm. you, it's one of those things where you just can't like, you know, spit the dummy and say, like, that's it, I quit. Because, I mean, if you're stuck in the middle of nowhere mm. and you've got a broken down Jeep, you, you, there is, there's no RACV. It's, <laughs> you've just got to find a way. You've just, and, and, that's, and, that's, and that was a good mindset it, it kind of creates because you need discipline, effort, and you have to punch through hardship, yeah. which is one of the best skills you can get for life since I think one of the, the best life skills anyone can have is resilience. Absolutely. Mm. Excellent, excellent. Uh, you discovered Christ while you were serving. Yep. Um, life turned around. Do you want to tell us about that, your faith, how that came about? And Yeah, I mean, I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian home. Uh, growing up, everything I, I knew about Christianity, I learned from Ned Flanders. Uh, and I just assumed uh, churches were filled with moralizing geriatrics. And um, Welcome to City on a Hill. <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> Um, and a, fr a friend of mine invited me to come to church, and I was pretty much, my, my life was kind of work, going to nightclubs, mm -hmm. kind of, I was getting sick. I thought I'm going to do something different. So I thought I'd go in and, you know, go hang out with some moralizing geriatrics or something a bit different. And, uh, but I got there now, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't moralizing geriatrics. It was actually a new church plant um, in southwest Sydney. Uh, it was a whole bunch of people, young, elderly, middle age, everything, and they were really good. They were really nice people, and I connected with them, and I noticed these people were different. Um, they, I mean, I've met nice people before, but these people had some sort of weird thing going on in their life, and that weird thing was Jesus, mm. and they uh, preached the gospel. It was the first time I heard the gospel preached, 
And, uh, you know, in 1994, I prayed to receive Christ, and the world was a different place ever since. Mm, beautiful, yeah. beautiful. And you have written, authored over 30 books. Which, which has been the most meaningful for you? Uh, oh, just a number. They're like, they're like children's. Like, how do you pick yeah. from your children? Um, probably the, the book I got the, I'm most proud of is one called Evangelical Theology. Yeah. Uh, which is because that's a, a book that says what happens if you make the gospel the center boundary and integrating point for all of theology. So that's mm. the basic thesis. And that's what I did in that book. Uh, I got to tin up, up with a guy called N.T. Wright and write a book called New Testament in its World. And that was great. I mean, that's like I'm being asked to sing a duet with Beyonce. Come and on. It was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. But what I also, I got to go on a book tour. <laughs> yes. Um, and one thing I, I learned is um, a lot of people came to hear us, but they came to hear Tom. Um, and I was just there kind of like holding the luggage. And it was, it was, it was, it was a great, um, kind of humbling. Uh, but like when you, when you sing a, 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 a duet with Beyonce, no one... They came for Beyonce. That's yes. what I learned. But that was great fun. And we, you know, we, we filmed a, a DVD series to go with the book in Israel, Greece, Rome. And it was, um, that was, that's been a big highlight of what I've done as well. And I think I've also written one. What's the last one? I could go through all 30. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I also wrote a book called Bourgeois Babes, Bossy Wives, and Bobby Haircuts, r- wrestling with the issue of you know, women ministry, preaching, and that type of a thing. And uh, in the very least, it's got a catchy title. It's a great title and yeah. a good book. And uh, if you want to grab any of uh, Mike's books, you can find them online, obviously. We've also got uh, the one that he's written about the topic today on uh, religious freedom in a secular age. That's available uh, down at the... Our bookstore, I'm going to call it that today. It's not a bookstore, it's a welcome desk. Go grab it from there as well. Last question, if you were not a theologian, if you couldn't be doing that, what would you be doing? Oh, that is a very good question. I did enjoy my career in military intelligence. Yes. I did. And um, this is the problem I have with students. I said to them, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I was Jason Bourne, <laughs> but no one has ever seen us in the same room. And, <laughs> and But then the students... Um, like Emily, Ben and Sharon say, Jason Bourne, you look more like Austin Powers. <laughs> um, and the problem is it is kind of true. I mean, I mean, yeah. There you go. Good stuff. Hey, Ben's got to come up. We're going to pray for Mike. Uh, can we do that? We'll do that. Father, thank you so much for Mike. Thank you for the wonderful ways you've been at work in his life. Uh, I want to give you much praise and thanks for the way that Jesus captured his heart. Um, redeemed him, uh, helped him see and know you uh, as you have revealed yourself to be in all your goodness and glory and beauty and truth. I uh, thank you for the wonderful contribution that Mike uh, is making, has made uh, to the kingdom. Uh, thank you for his prolific writing, uh, for his lecturing, for his teaching. Thank you for the word ministry that's so evident in his life and the many people he's encouraged along the way. Be with him today, Lord. Use him uh, to encourage us and to fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's people said with one super loud voice. Amen. 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 Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thank you to the invitation from Guy and the whole Sydney Hill team. It is great to be here. Uh, before we start, I'm going to pray for us, okay? Our Heavenly Lord, bless us now as we look at this topic of freedom. Freedom of religion, freedom to be the human beings you would have us be, freedom to love our neighbors. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. 
Uh, well, uh, you may have noticed in the last several years, freedom of religion is a somewhat controversial topic, but we need to embed that in a certain tension that we find already within the New Testament when it comes to the way that Christians relate to the state. So if you go to something such as the book of Acts, you can find statements like this, how the church was standing in favor with all the people. So you can, you can see that there. So the, 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 the people thought the church was good. They were, very, they, were, they were righteous. They were very devout. They were very pious. They were liked. But then on the other hand, uh, when the preaching of Jesus began to annoy the civic leaders and the civic leaders told the church to stop doing that, the apostles to stop doing that, they would reply, we must obey God rather than any human authority. So you can see that tension on the one hand, you know, have favor with all the people. But on the other hand, we have to obey God rather than other human authorities. And it becomes even, even, even more intense. If you look at something like Romans 13. In Romans 13, uh, Paul says, you know, Christians should obey the governing authorities because they have been instituted by God. You know, they're there to administer justice. They're there to govern, to rebel against government is to rebel against what God has instituted. So we should be pro-government. I mean, chaos, anarchy, that's not good. What we really want is to have good government and we should submit to that. That's Romans 13. But then you go to the book of Revelation chapter 13 where the Roman Empire is described like a monster rising out of the sea and it's there to devour and enslave all that comes before it. And John of Patmos, you can see him urging people to see how evil this thing is and for pray for its destruction. And based on our own proclivities, it will depend whether we think we should be doing Romans 13 or Revelation 13. So when my party is in office, you know, I like Romans 13. When the other side is in office, I'm Revelation 13. You know, it's like, yes, submit to governing authorities that I like. And as for the other one, put them in the deity's dumpster of destruction. You know, that, could, that can be the way we like to think about it. Now, because the Christians were initially persecuted, uh, they were, as you can imagine, very big advocates for religious freedom. Let me read to you what Tertullian wrote. He said, he's the church father in the second century. He said, we are worshippers of one God whose existence and character uh, nature teaches all men at whose lightning and thunder you tremble, whose benefits minister to your happiness. You think that others too are gods whom we know to be devils. However, it is a fundamental human right, a privilege of nature that every man, every person should worship according to his own conviction. One man's religion neither harms nor helps another man. It is assuredly no part of religion to compel religion to which free will not force should lead us. The sacrificial victims even being required of a willing mind you will render no real service to your gods by compelling us to sacrifice for they have no desire of offerings from the unwilling unless they are animated by a spirit of contention which is a thing altogether undivine so early christians were told look either you worship to the emperor you worship to the local civic uh, gods of the pantheon or you will be persecuted 
Because if you, if you don't offer sacrifices to the gods, the gods will get angry and they'll send earthquakes, plague, famine, that type of thing. So Christians, because they were persecuted, were very big on religious freedom in the ancient world. They were very big on the Roman Empire granting them religious freedom right up until the point until they became the Roman Empire. And then once you get into the Roman Emperor Constantine, the gradual Christianization of the empire, then a lot of Christians changed their tune. And they were then quite happy to prosecute, persecute uh, pagans, especially uh, Jewish communities, uh, both in the Latin West and the Byzantine East, um, other groups as well, including the uh, interactions with Muslims. So they were very much in favor of religious freedom until they became one with the empire itself. And that is, that's what effectively lasted until you get to the Reformation. Within the Reformation uh, in the 1500s, you get this division within the Latin West. I mean, there was a division with the Greek East already, the Greek Orthodox. They did their own thing, but they were still Christians. It was more of a, a political sort of a, a differentiation and a few minor doctrinal things. But with the coming of the Reformation, you have the fragmentation of the Latin West between the Catholic Church and now a number of different Protestant denominations. You get the Lutherans, you get the Reformed, you obviously get the Church of England as well, and then you get the Baptists, and then you get the Wesleyans, then you get the Presbyterians, then you get the Congregationalists. And this created internal tensions within European states. And there would be wars fought on this. You know, the wars over religion, you know, Catholics versus Protestants. And the only thing the Catholics and the Protestants could agree on was drowning Baptists. That was, you know, the only thing that really brought them together. There was the, the only ecumenical act they could come up with was persecuting Baptists together. Then people said, look, we can't, we're all meant to be Christians here. We're not meant to be attacking one another over religion. So we're going to need some kind of settlement which means the prince, the king, whoever it is, cannot impose religion. You've got to allow all people to follow their own religious inclinations, convictions, and consciences. So they came up with a kind of a settlement, which is kind of the beginning of secularism, where the state would now be neutral in matters of religion. They're not going to force everyone to worship in the Anglican way or the Catholic way. Although certain religions or certain denominations could still be privileged, they granted religious tolerance. And then things become a little bit more complicated again when you get to the rise of the Enlightenment. This is where you have an explosion of knowledge and learning, the makings of modern science. And in the same way that the reformers were critical of the Catholic Church, that same spirit of skepticism was now applied to the very concept of revealed religion itself. So you know, like, did God really say, I mean, was there really a snake in the garden? I mean, how, virgins having babies, I mean, is that real? And there's a whole, a whole bunch of different ways you can go from that. And so there was a further diversification, not just in Christian dominations, but you have a rise in atheism, agnosticism, and deism. So to deal with this new, very diverse religious landscapes from, you know, atheists, Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, all sorts of things, uh, there was an increasing case made for religious toleration. And this is where you get people like John Locke writing on the concept of, you know, the toleration of different uh, groups in society. 
And if you know anything about the American Republic, um, or before that, all the Puritans went over because they wanted to try get away from state persecution, often in England, and they wanted to create their own heavenly society. But it became very clear that they had different ideas about what this heavenly society would look like. And they did not want to import the same sort of top-down hierarchy and authority imposing religion on the masses. So they then created their own constitution, uh, which would make the separation of church and state, which wasn't unprecedented, but would make the separation of church and state one of the key laws of the country. So rather than the church be chaplains of the state, albeit not too close to the state because we're not going to do a theocracy, but kings and bishops can still get along and do stuff. They said, no, we want to separate these apart. And they put that in their constitution where they said in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So therefore you have the non-establishment clause. They can't say we're going to be an Anglican country, a Catholic country or a Rastafarian country. We're not going to do that. We're going to have no official religion and the government will not tell you how to do your religion and this is the beginning of the secularity of government and that becomes very influential in other parts of the world in fact the Australian constitution you could argue is a uh, Westminster appropriation of the um, American uh, federal constitution so that brings us to Australia. Australia, when it was uh, colonized and then federalized, largely followed the British model. Look, we're effectively, you know, Anglicans were supposed to be. Um, they sent a lot of Catholic convicts out here, and part of the punishment was they forced them to worship using Anglican liturgy. Um, they'll teach those Irish a lesson. Yes, talking to you, Ben, make them worship like Anglicans. They'll teach them a lesson. Yeah, steal my goat, would you? Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that's so Australia was meant to be sort of Anglican, but it 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 wasn't founded to be a. It wasn't it wasn't like America. It wasn't meant to be heaven on earth. It wasn't a bunch of religious dissenters trying to build Jerusalem. Okay, it was a penal colony. Okay, uh, but when they did come up with their own constitution uh, at Federation, now you you can see this on the screen. Now this, now listen to this. This is what our own Commonwealths. Um, uh, constitution says about religion okay the commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any public office or public trust under the commonwealth so that's, that's very similar to america you can't have an official state religion Okay, uh, the government can't interfere in your religion, and you can't make a test. You can't say, "Well, you can only serve in Parliament if you're Catholic, or you can only be a member of the Australian Public Service if you're Anglican." But note the words there: the Commonwealth. That means the federal government can do that. What can the states do? And the answer is whatever you like. Uh, and, and this is the problem we have. At the federal level, we do have a very tight statement about religious freedom, but that doesn't carry over at the state levels. So what did the states do to guarantee religious freedom? Well, what they've done in the majority of cases is they've given religious communities exemptions to anti-discrimination laws. 
Okay, that's how they've kind of filled in the gaps, if you like. Uh, which means you can't sue a Catholic, uh, the Catholic Church because they won't ordain you, a woman, to be a priest. Because, you know, Catholics believe in a male priesthood. Um, in most vocations, you know, you cannot discriminate on the basis of gender or sex. But because of the exemptions to anti-discrimination law, uh, they allow Catholics to do that. Or the same thing, a, a Christian charity can insist that its officers be professing members of the Christian church. So in order to work at a Jewish charity, maybe you have to be Jewish, or a Muslim charity, you have to be Muslim, they're allowed to you know, put those extra obligations on people uh, who want to work in their organization. Now, there has been some attempt in the past to, uh, to referenda to change the Australian constitution so it applies just to the, not just to the Commonwealth government but also to the states. That was in 1952 and in 1988. They tried to fix that gap by adding Commonwealth and the states, but it got defeated both times. And they were, some people, church leaders in 1988, were worried that Bob Hawke was making a power grab and he would be able to control the churches because apparently uh, drunk atheists are not the people you normally expect to be championing uh, religious rights. I mean, Hawke did some other thing, but that was the perception back at the time in 1988. So, I mean, that's the kind of where we stand. We've got, at the federal level sort of American-British-esque freedom of religion. At the state level, religious freedom with the um, exemptions to anti-discrimination law. But that's exactly the problem now, isn't it? We have the sexual uh, revolution, where the idea of discriminating against people for being gay, bi, trans is now considered horrible and immoral. And I, maybe some of you are not old, old enough to remember this, but I've seen a huge transformation in our culture over the course of my lifetime. I remember my stepfather making numerous homophobic jokes, always accusing me of being you know, queer for something. Uh, and yet, 40 years later, the same guy was uh, out there telling me why we should all be voting for same-sex marriage. Uh, so, I mean, and that's indicative of, of the wider change in culture we have. Now, in that culture, to discrim discriminate against anyone because of their sexuality or their identity does not make any sense, and it is morally affronting. So here's the problem we have. Religious bodies are allowed to discriminate against people for all sorts of reasons, including being gay or trans or whatever, and that's regarded as something that is moral detestable. It's the idea that all discrimination is inherently bad. And this is what we find being played out in our culture. These sorts of scenarios are coming up and laws are now being changed. They're making it a little bit more complicated between the way Christian schools, charities, and to some degree even um, churches or synagogues or mosques can do business. And the idea is here, how do you balance the right of religious people, religious communities to be genuinely religious, to be who they are, which is a good thing with the other thing that, you know, nobody should experience detrimental effects because of their gender, ethnicity or sexual orientation, which I think we would generally say yeah, is a good thing. So the problem is, you know, it's like two good things coming into conflict, you know, religious freedom, religious identity. That's a good thing. And then 
all other sort of identities and the idea they're not being burdened with anyone else's religion, that's also a good thing as well. Now, this is the debates that we're finding in our culture, and they're panning out differently. And most of the time, they're usually requiring us to modify the nature, the meaning, and the extent of religious freedom. Let me just give you a uh, a couple of examples uh, about this. In Queensland... Uh, several years ago, the religious schools uh, bodies were briefed that according to current anti-discrimination law, the only person in a school whose job had a religious requirement was the school chaplain. That is, you can only insist that the school chaplain has to be a Christian, you can't really do that for the school principal or someone who teaches maths. I mean, and, and their argument is, well, what's Christian about teaching maths? Maths is maths. Or even being a principal. A principal is just an administrator. And the problem schools get into is, you know, it's very hard to find Christian French teachers. So they will go out and hire a non-Christian French teacher. And then that gives them the art. People say, well, look, you can have a non- one, one non-Christian teaching French. Why can't you have all your teachers as non-Christian? I mean, unless they're ordained clergy, I mean, do you really, can you really prove that being Christian is essential to the job? And this is sort of the debate they're having in the school sector. Well, let me give you an, another one, a somewhat famous case in Queensland called Walsh versus St. Vincent de Paul. This was a Catholic charity, and one of their sub-branches was being run by a lady who was not Catholic. Uh, she, was, she was Christian, but not Catholic. And uh, some people in the organization said, well, if she's not Catholic, she either needs to resign or convert to Catholicism and she was instructed to do that but she refused she took them to court and she won and the decision was very interesting because the court decided or maybe decreed that St. Vincent's de Paul uh, was not a religious body so St. Vincent's de Paul I mean it's called St. Vincent's de Paul Uh, It was not a religious body, and they also said that being Catholic was not an essential aspect of the function of the position. Now, this, this is very interesting because you now have a court deciding who is or isn't a religious body, deciding... Uh, which areas of life religion is allowed to matter in. And they're also deciding what is and is not essential to being a Catholic. Now, that is the real weird area we are moving into because the whole premise behind the Constitution we saw is the government must regard itself as incompetent to adjudicate matters of religion. Okay, Because the minute... The government starts telling you what is essential to being Catholic, what is essential to being Anglicanism. That's not an attack on religious freedom. That's an attack on secularism. And uh, the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission has put out some guidelines, which at one level uh, is very good, explaining what religious schools can and can't do. And they've said, look, you know, you can discriminate based on religious belief, but you can't discriminate on any other aspect. You can't discriminate on gender, sex, um, sexual orientation, and anything like that. And I've sent them a number of questions, um, asking them what would they make of the, the case in Queensland with St. Vincent's de Paul. And I've also sent them another question they've yet to answer me. And I said, if there was a principal of a Catholic school 
who had his own website called Down with the Papacy, uh, and he was advocating what's called Gallicanism rather than the, than the Vatican I view of papal infallibility, um, is he still Catholic enough to serve as the principal of a Catholic high school? In other words, you know, are they, is belief in papal infallibility essential for being a Catholic? Now, the reason I've sent them that question is because I want them to start thinking about the questions uh, that their new powers have given them. Uh, we'll, be able to, we'll be able to send them all sorts of, all of our theological d- debates we can now send to the government and the government's going to tell us whether they are essential for being a Christian. Do I need to believe in baptism to be a Baptist? I want to hear the government's answer to this the, because they now have the power to decide what is essential or non-essential to being a Catholic, a Christian, or Muslim. And this, I think this is the problem we've got into. And other legal commentators, particularly people who have commentated on the St. Vincent's de Paul versus Walsh case, have exactly that. You're going to a very weird area when you're going to start telling Catholics who is Catholic. And these are some of the things I'm worried about. Uh, The other thing we've had in uh, Victoria is not just the issue of, you know, how can religious schools discriminate. We had the the ban on conversion therapy and gender suppression. Now, let me come out and say the, the impetus for this, the motivation to stop religious or non-religious practices that were very cruel, demeaning, and inhumane being applied to LGBT people, I think those sort of bans are good. I've heard about them. I've had one friend who's been through a few of them. Um, He said in his case, he didn't find them harmful. He just found them useless. But there are some very harmful things that people have been done. Uh, You know, things like give a, you know, 14-year-old boy just, you know, Playboy magazines and say, keep reading that till you like girls or something. So, I mean, there's some real bad, tasteless, harmful stuff that's been done. And the Anglicans, the Catholics, uh, the, the Jewish leadership and the Muslims, they, all, they, all, they supported in principle a ban on conversion therapies. Okay, so that, that there was some goodwill going out there. The problem is the Victorian government has defined suppression incredibly broadly. Now, they're prohibiting things such as um, exorcism, uh, they also prohibit the mention of sexual brokenness, uh, and this is all. And this is a little bit concerning. The first jurisdiction in the world that I am aware of who has uh, criminalised or prohibited certain types of prayer. So the, this legislation it says you cannot pray for someone to change their sexual orientation. Now, I don't know of anywhere in the world where they've, you know, got. <laughs> legal documents prohibiting certain types of prayers. Uh, In the Attorney General's memorandum accompanying it, they said they're also um, willing to investigate informal practices like conversation. So if you have a conversation with someone about sexuality, um, you're probably not going to go to jail, but you can be reported, investigated, requested to go to mediation on things you say in informal conversation. 
Ro Allen, the former LGBT advocate in the Premier's office, who by all accounts was a, was a very good um, advocate, she did an interview with uh, Eternity magazine, and she did say if you mention the word celibacy in the context of you know, LGBTI uh, people, uh, you could very potentially get in trouble. Again, not necessarily, you're not going to go to prison for it, but you could hold before a commission and you could end up, you know, having to go through mediation, maybe be fined or something like that. Now, I found that interesting because it, it depends, well, what do you mean by that? Like, if I pray for my LGBTI friend that they discern within the precincts of their own conscience how to walk in holiness before God, and if that holiness requires some restraint on their sexual desire, as it would be for any human being, is that a type of suppression? Now, I think most of us would say no, but it all now comes down to how the bureaucratic and administrative bodies interpret it. They could potentially interpret it that way. And this is why I think we're going into a slightly difficult context. I have a friend of mine um, who is uh, a same-sex attracted. He gave a sermon talking about his life, uh, and he, he, he's a, a, a celibate person, and he, for giving that sermon, he can't be prosecuted. I mean, you can't be prosecuted for sermons or religious activity. You can get up and say almost anything uh, behind a pulpit, and you, you, you can't really be prosecuted unless you're doing something horribly vilifying or hateful. Uh, and he, he could never be prosecuted, but if you shared that sermon and gave it to someone, that could potentially get you in trouble. So this is kind of like the big brave world that we are now in. And it's a little bit complicated because on the one hand, we don't want to see unfair discriminations and harms against LGBTI people or Muslims or atheists, agnostics or whatever. But at the same time, um, when the government is telling you what you can or cannot do within your religion, it's kind of beginning to infringe both upon religious freedom and the very nature of secularism itself. So what does Australia need? Well, we either we could amend the constitution, but constitutional um, changes are very, very unlikely to get through. We've done this twice before. Unless you get both sides of politics in support of it, um, refer, um, changes by, made by referendum very rarely get through. Uh, what I think we need in Australia is a positive statement of religious freedom. And let me give you a good um, template here. This is called the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. This is a United Nations uh, document, which I think is, is quite good. Rather than define religious freedom as a right to discriminate, because I mean, there's far more to religious freedom than deciding who can or can't work in a Christian school or charity. But it basically says this. It says, everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. The right shall include freedom to have or to adopt a religion or belief of his choice, and freedom either individually or community with others, in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in worship, observance, practice, and teaching. No one shall be subject to coercion which would impair his freedom or have to adopt a religion or belief of his choice. Freedom to manifest one's religion or beliefs may be subject only to such limitations as prescribed by law and are necessary. And the necessary stuff is detailed in another document called the Syracuse Principles. To protect public safety, order, health, morals, or the fundamental rights and freedoms of others. 
And then finally, states parties to, to the present covenant undertake to respect for the liberty of parents when applicable legal guidance to ensure the religious and moral education of their children in conformity with their own convictions. Now, that I think is a very thick, wholesome and helpful definition of what religion is. But there's a number of key statements about it. Things such as you can, you can have religious freedom in public in community with others because some people want to define religious freedom very narrowly like it exists between your ears it only applies to religious belief or it's something you do for one hour on a Sunday so this is a far more uh, a broader statement the other thing I think we need in Australia is an anti-religious discrimination bill I mean we have a sex discrimination disability discrimination um, uh, we, you know, we have a, a whole bunch of anti-discrimination bills and we do need them. Australia does not have high rates of government interference in religion, but we actually score quite high in social hostility to religion. Now, you can see that in elements of Islamophobia, where someone, you know, gets a pig's head and leaves it at the front of a mosque. You can see um, elements of anti-Semitism. A couple of years ago, um, Greens leader Adam Band tweeted out an image of a, a Jewish banker. And uh, many people pointed out that this was straight out of you know, Marxist anti-Semitist uh, propaganda. Uh, there are you know, certain aspects of society that are a little bit allergic to Christianity as well. I think of people like uh, the Reason Party. The, the solution, I, what we need, uh, is maybe legislation like that. But I would say um, secularism is actually a good thing. Okay, because we often talk, you know, the secularists are out to get us, like, you know, like it's a teenage, you know, um, horror flick, and you know, there's vampires, but the vampires are secularists. Um, you know, and we often think of secularism as the boogeyman, the bad guy that's out to get you. But no, I actually think secularism is the, a good thing. Secularism means we're not going to live in a theocracy. Okay, we're not going to live under an ayatollah or a chief rabbi, or a Dalai Lama, or a bishop. We're not going to do that. But by the same token, the government is not going to tell you how to do your religion. Okay, That's very important as well. So secularism, a good thing. It's about creating people for all faiths and none. For creating instruments so that we can all live together, we can all work together. Okay, So th th that's the basic idea. And Australia is not a secular country. This we have to remember. We are a multicultural country with a secular government. Okay? That's, that's the key difference. We are a multicultural with a secular government, and secularism is what means we can live in peace with others. Uh, to go through things just very briefly now, uh, I think the future is going to be a little bit more complicated. I think we're going to see uh, a little bit more tensions between particularly between the conflict between religious freedom, religious institutions, and LGBTI rights. Uh, I grieve this because I think we can find a way to ensure that LGBT people are not subject to unfair discriminations, but I also think forcing a Muslim school to hire a gay atheist as their principal is not going to work. You know, so hopefully some common sense will prevail on that and we can find an equitable solution so uh, we can have a, a, a wholesome multicultural democracy. The second thing you've got to watch out, there is a real temptation uh, for white Christian nationalism. Okay? There are a whole bunch of people who want a kind of you know, head-kicking kind of messiah who will come around and vanquish 
all of our secular enemies and set up some kind of you know, um, soft theocracy. Uh, we don't want that either. That is not good. Theocracy is not good. Uh, we don't want to go uh, that kind of way. I mean, you can see how that's playing out in America now. And that is a, that is a whole lot of ugly. You do, not, you do not want to do that. So uh, what can you do? Um, uh, my advice, when the new legislation comes out, make sure you read it. Okay? Read it. You don't need to be a, a lawyer. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a lawyer uh, by any stretch. Um, I was going to go to law school, but I failed the medical. Um, they, couldn't remo- they, could- they couldn't remove my conscience. Um, <laughs> sorry to all the lawyers here, but I couldn't resist that. Uh, you, can read, you can read the legislation. Um, you know, and when people talk about it, tell people, hey, I've read it, and that's not what it says. There is a lot of misinformation, and I was very disappointed to see that the ABC has been one of the worst offenders when it comes to uh, expressing misinformation. Uh, you can get some in other places too, like in the Murdoch media. But when the ABC was saying things like, you know, if the religious discrimination bill passes, then people can go around verbally abusing disabled people, saying the reason you're disabled is because, you know, God's cursing you for something. Uh, that, is, that was not in the legislation, and yet the, the ABC was riding on that. Um, the other thing to do is write to your local MPs, uh, federal and state, tell them your concerns, tell them what you want. They do take notice of this. There's a number of good organisations you can keep in contact with, uh, such as Freedom for Faith, uh, based in Sydney, the Institute for Civil Society in Melbourne. Um, there's the Australian Christian Lobby, which does do uh, some good work in the religious freedom advocacy I just add a little bit of an asterisk there uh, because they definitely uh, are more partial to one side of politics. Um, let the reader understand. Um, <laughs> but they do do some good work on religious freedom. Uh, pray for balance of rights, no information, for a good secularism and a, a good liberal pluralistic uh, democracy. And one thing I'll leave you with as I finish off right now is a letter that the American President George Washington wrote to some um, Jews, a Jewish congregation in Rhode Island, because uh, they were fleeing religious persecution as well. And this is what George Washington uh, said to them. And if you know the musical Hamilton, these, these words will sound familiar. He said, It would be inconsistent with the frankness of my character not to avow that I am pleased with your favorable opinion of my administration and fervent wishes for my felicity. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants. While everyone shall sit in safety under their own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here, and his own due time and way everlastingly happy. Um, but I like that, because that's a quote from Micah 4, that everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. That is ultimately the goal of religious freedom. That, I believe, is what we should stand for as Christians. And in the words of the great American philosopher, Forrest Gump, that is all I have to say about that. So thank you very much. We're going to jump into some Q&A um, and be able to yeah, continue learning. This is a great opportunity for us to continue learning and look at um, how this works out for us. So the first question is, where is the line between following the law and suppressing personal holiness? 
Yeah, that's a hard one to answer without a specific issue. Mm. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's been like, you know, one of the questions is, you know, can the government require you to do stuff against your conscience? And this, and this sort of, you know, goes into, into freedom of conscience. Mm. Uh, and then you've got the thing, but can your conscience burden other people? For example, can you say, well, you know, I'm a Christian doctor and I don't want to, you know, operate on an LGBT person. Mm. Well, I mean, that's obviously a pretty big level. I mean, you can, you can call that a conscientious objection, but again, your conscience is burdening someone else in a pretty detrimental way mm. if you're not going to do surgery on them. Uh, but then you've got the example, say, in somewhere like in the United States, we had that very famous case in Denver where you had a baker called Jack Phillips mm. um, who refused to decorate a, um, a gay wedding cake. Uh, and, I mean, this is the thing, and this, is, this was reported in the Australian media, saying he refused to serve gay mm. people. That was not true. He had yeah. no problem with LGBT customers. He would do, uh, he would serve all people, but he did not do uh, all art requested. He also refused to decorate a cake with a homophobic message on it. Mm. He refused to make some rather macabre um, Halloween um, cakes. Um, he also refused to make some tawdry bucks party um, cakes in certain um, shapes, as you can maybe imagine. Mm. Don't imagine. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but again, in the, the media got misreported like he refused yeah. to serve. And uh, when it went to the Colorado Commission, one of the commissioners basically called him a Nazi. Mm. And then when it went to the um, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, he won his case. Um, and it was because he served all people, but he would not do all art requested, and he was called a Nazi during um, his mm. hearing. So there's an example where you could argue, well, I mean, he was simply expressing his conscience, and it wasn't terribly detrimental to the person, since I'm pretty sure there's more than one cake. I've been to, actually, I've been to Colorado. There's more than one cake decorator in Colorado. So again, it, the issue, how it impacts you, depends on the degree of detriment to other human beings. Yeah. That's helpful. Sharon, you work with City Bible Forum, so you work with a lot of workers in our city. How have you seen this play out in that space, recognising that you're helping people be Christians in the workplace and the balance that is required? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe? Maybe? No. Nope. You were muted. Hey. There she is. Um, yes, certainly we've seen this play out, uh, particularly with um, like Wear Purple Day, uh, you know, going to events uh, that are diversity and inclusion committee run. Um, often what I will encourage Christians to do is not so much have a black and white answer. I think we live in a world where we want instant answers. We just want to know what's the next right thing to do. Mm. But actually have a conversation with God, have a conversation with your gospel community um, and let's figure this thing out because it's not often a simple answer mm. um, and I think actually taking the time to ask God to consult people you trust mm. um, and take the next faithful step. You don't have to work it all out in that one instant um, and yeah take heart on how you're responding as well and be honest with yourself. Yep. That's helpful and a good plug for gospel communities. Well done. Uh, we'll jump to the next question. Uh, knowing how much influence history has had on modern Christianity and politics, how can we know whether our views and actions are reflections of God's biblical will? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, everyone likes to have God on their side of politics. You know, everyone <laughs> likes to think that God's on their side. On, I mean, on the one hand, this is what I would say. 
um, all of our political views, to some degree, are part of the Christian revolution. Okay, the way Christianity revolutionized Western society. And so let me say this. You know, we live in a society now where, where victims have virtually sacred status. Mm. Now, can you think of any religion where the central symbol was someone who was a victim of Roman imperial power and died a slave's death through a means of torturous execution? Can you think of any religion? Mm. So the whole idea of victim worship, I mean, Christianity, you've got a cross here. It's victim worship. So you could argue that the whole sort of, you know, the, the way we think of people who are, you know, I mean, people use different language, but those who are oppressed, marginalized, looked down upon, the idea of lifting them up is an essential Christian idea. Um, but as G.K. Chesterton uh, once said, the world has gone mad with Christian ideas. Okay, so it's, 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 it's a different Different Christian ideas are in tension with one another. And so, and, and this is a point I learned from Tom Holland. Our culture wars are people arguing about Christian ideas, but only one side of the argument recognizes the Christian heritage of what they're arguing. Mm. But the fact that we're arguing that victims should be protected and lift up, that's a Christian idea. Okay, the idea that we're uh, saying, you know, submit to government or family is good or, you know, whatever it is. These are also Christian arguments and they've come into conflict. So the problem is, Everyone is arguing in Christian currency. Everyone is trading in Christian virtues, uh, whether they acknowledge it or not. Um, the challenge is, is to come to a fair and equitable settlement that allows us to live in peace with others, allowing people to be other uh, and doesn't burden your nature. So no one's being coerced, you know, in things like you've got to wear the, you know, rainbow badge or no one's being uh, coerced. Um, that you have to attend you know, this church to, 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 um, to do something. So that's, that's the problem we're having. We're all trading in Christian currency. Hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. We'll jump to the next one. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, how should we respond when PMs or premiers who profess a broadly Christian faith, e.g. Howard, Rudd, Morrison, Andrews, and their governments enact policies that strongly contradict a Christian worldview? Yeah, that's another good question. My, everyone has their pet cause. My little pet cause is um, the, ant, the, the gambling, I call them gambling lobby, the gambling cartels. Um, I grew up in a family where my stepfather became a gambling addict and everyone's life became utterly miserable. Mm. Uh, poverty, dysfunction, uh, dysfunction, domestic violence. And I really hate it when I know both sides of politics accept money from the gambling cartels and they accept job from the gambling cartels when they leave politics. So, yeah, that is difficult. Or you could pick the topic of refugees or you could pick, you know, you know social housing or, you know, economic equality. It is hard. Uh, but that's the, the, the problem with politics is you, it deals in the art of compromise and you've got a lot of David and Goliath situations. So there is going to be no government which is going to be perfectly Christian and represent the values, regardless of whether you get someone who's overtly Christian like a Kevin Rudd or a Scott Morrison. All of them are having to deal with different issues. What we can do, and this is what successful advocates have done, is rub their Christianity in their face. You know, and This is what Martin Luther King did. Um, he said, you claim to be Christian. And yet you have not accepted the fact that, you know, from one blood, God had made all human beings. If you really believed this, you would not have segregation or you'd give us voting rights. And you, you rub their religion in their face. And that's what, that's what the best advocates um, uh, have done to government to put pressure on them to, to get a more Christian worldview. Hmm. Sharon, have you got anything to add to that? 
Yeah, I think for us non-advocates, um, sorry, by default, I think one thing we can naturally do is actually pray. Like our first response, I think, should be that of a um, coming before God, maybe grieving the things we're seeing or hearing and the, and the um, contrast between what, who they proclaim they, they are and what they're seemingly doing. Yep. Um, so I think, yeah, always, I, I don't pray enough in my prayer life mm. for government, and I think today has been a really big reminder of that. But do you pray, do you pray Romans 13 or Revelation 13? Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Sing. Nice. Well done. We'll jump to the next questions. Um, why should we care about what we're being discriminated against in terms of laws or popular opinion? <laughs> I just heard Sharon go, oh, yes. Well, do you have, do you have, do you have an opinion on that? No, I'm still marinating. Okay. Uh, well, I noticed, like, I know a number of Christian social workers who are now uh, increasingly being, being required to affirm things they do not believe as part of their job. And it's not a case of you've got to be, you have to be permissible about this. Like, you reckon, okay, I understand that's your view. They're now being told you must affirm and say yeah. this. And I am very allergic to anyone, I mean, you know, whether religious or not, no one should be required to offer token acts of obedience to demonstrate that they are loyal to a particular cause, okay? Uh, whether that's like st- sticking a flag in your window saying workers of the world unite or an Amer- you know, make America you know, great again bumper sticker, no one should be required to do these token acts of obedience mm. to demonstrate they're loyal to the cause. And in the ancient world, the, the, the token act of obedience was you had to offer a pinch of incense to an image of the emperor and worship him as a god. That's how you demonstrated you were, you were with the cool kids. Mm. And um, when, people, when people demand my uh, allegiance, I instinctively want to offer them my unmitigated defiance. Um, <laughs> Which is why, to this very day, I have not taken up coffee when I came to Melbourne. (laughs) You want me to drink your coffee, do you, Melbourneites? Well, let me answer that for you. Mmm, delicious. We don't have time for this, Mike. Sorry, Mike. In addition addition to my campaign against, uh, for religion, freedom, and the anti-gambling lobby, I'm also an anti-coffee, not activist, more of a fanatic, because... Fanaticism is the purest form of love. That's the actual left and right question, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's right. Sharon, how's your marination gone? Yeah, no, that was great. Okay, great. We'll jump to the next one. Last question. How do we individually promote or encourage religious freedom for ourselves or for others without being offensive in our daily lives? Yeah, I, I think the number one thing you have to do is help people understand what religion is. Well, religious freedom is. Uh, and people think religion is nothing more than a right to discriminate. And you're getting that from, from the media. You're getting that from government bodies. You're getting that from intellectuals. Religion is nothing more than a right to discriminate. And I say, no, let's have a look at you know, the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights. That is a better view of religious freedom. And if you get into the ideas that no one should be co- uh, uh, coerced to do anything against their conscience. And there are, there are examples you can give about this. Um, and so one, one of the things I love, uh, I, when I meet someone who's very adv- uh, sort of avid about this, I say, well, you know, Israel Falau, and he got you know, sacked by Rugby Australia because he you know, said something a little bit, I mean, not something I would have said, by the way. He said something a little bit overtly um, 
um, controversial about you know, LGBT stuff. And I said, do you think he should be sacked? Do you think he should have been sacked from his, his job? And they say, You're, obviously. And then I, then I tell them about another legal case in the UK where there was a, there was a guy who worked for Aldi. And he was just a, he was literally a 50-year-old door greeter. That was his job, okay? Uh, on Facebook, he shared a video of Billy Colony, you know, the uh, somewhat foul-mouthed Scottish comedian, saying all these abusive things about the Muslims, the Jews, the Catholics, the Protestants. And one of his, this man's uh, co-workers, took offense at that. Mm. And, um, and, the, and he complained to the company Aldi, and the man had to apologize, but he got sacked. And I said to them, do you believe it's okay for Qantas to, suck, to sack Israel Folau? And they say, yep, do you believe it's okay for Aldi to sack a person for sharing an anti-religious video? And then they kind of think, I said, because that door swings both ways. Mm. Uh, for me, I think, I think the Israel Folau case is a red herring. I think it's not about religious law, it's about employment law. Does your employer own your social media account? And I do not, I mean, uh, I guess for the majority of you, I don't think you want your employer to be able to sack you for exercising your own opinions on social media. And so it just baffles me why people who are very pro-union were against this, because even if you disagree with Israel Folau, the idea that your employer can sack you for your opinion. So it's kind of stuff like that I tend to bring up. It's like, okay, you know, I, I, know, I I like the guy with the big stick when it's my team, but what about when the other team's in power and they've got this, you've given them the same stick? Mm. Okay, and that's, and that's where I come, you know, that quote from Micah 4, that George Washington quote, everyone will sit on their own vine and fig tree and none shall make them afraid. Mm. That's what I think we should go for. That should be the big picture that we, that we want to arrive at regardless of which political stream you're swimming in. Mm. Did you have anything? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really like, Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think just finally, uh, I I think the conversations that we're having in our everyday, just remember that all people are made in the image of God Mm. and we all have expressions and opinions that are very key to who we are Mm. Um, and I think just extend that generosity to others that you want to be shown as well in your conversations and getting building connection and relationships with the people you're in community with. Mm. That's good. Yeah. And on that, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll sing together. Let's pray, church. Father, we come to you in a complicated world where there is a lot of attention and light being shone on different things and different ways that we can express our faith, uh, express our convictions. And Father, I, I really pray that you would help us to know what is good and what is right and what is pleasing to you. Lord, help us to love our neighbour as ourselves, even if the neighbour is so different and does not love us back. Father, may we remember that we are your image bearers. Um, With that comes a great responsibility. And so, Lord, may we yield that well. Uh, May we be able to go into conversations that are hard and complex with uh, the front foot of generosity forward. Um, so that we may be men and women who lift your name high um, in a way that honours you and honours the world around us. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.
www.thepodcastnetwork.com.au.